0: Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, April 18th, the Algorithmy Edition. I'm June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Hannah Rosen is out this week, but taking her spot is Marsha Chaplin, a Professor of History and African American Studies at Georgetown University. Hi, Marsha. Hello. And, of course, Noreen Malone, who is now Editorial Director at New York <laughs> Magazines. Congratulations yes. on the promotion. Thank you. And it's very exciting because all three of us are in the same studio in New York because Marsha is up here. So this is really a treat. Never happens. I love being in Brooklyn. (laughs) (laughs) And we love having you here. Before we begin, I did just want to respond to some emails and tweets that we got last week from folks who were puzzled by Christina's announcement that we finally have a wonderful set team of Christina, Marcia and Nicole Perkins. And just to explain, we effectively have two teams at the Waves. Our week is usually Hannah, Noreen and me. And the wonderful women I mentioned will be the other week or week one and week A, as Christina um, said in an email, taking a tip from her time as a a college residence advisor, I believe. (laughs) Um, So it's a little bit of the same and a little bit of change, but it's a perfect combination, I have to say. I love getting to be a listener, one every other week. uh, And I think uh, we have... We will be kind of mixing it up and we're just so happy to have such awesome people on the show. All right. On today's show, we'll be talking about what happened when a woman was credited with making the first image of a black hole possible, the gendered state of parenting while running for president and white male victimhood. And Noreen, what is our is it sexist question that we'll be discussing in our fourth segment, which is for Slate Plus members? Is it sexist
1: that people are not taking Kim Kardashian's quest to become an attorney seriously?
0: Here's a little sample from that conversation.
1: And I don't know that it's actually sexist for us to say that, like, her public image is sexist, because she has carefully crafted that herself, right? Mm -hmm. She has um, made physical appearance super, super central to her role in the world.
0: And that's not to say that she's not a great business person, which she obviously is. You can hear more by starting a free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash plus. All right, let's get started. Last week, the very first visualization of a black hole, a phenomenon that was previously believed to be unseeable, was revealed at a conference. And the photo that was then released got a lot of people excited. I happened to be in a meeting when it was unleashed on the world, and I swear every single person in the room had a like multiple pictures of the picture, multiple images of it on their screen simultaneously. But then, as so often happens, the Internet turned lemonade into a rotting pile of lemons. Marsha, what happened?
2: So this story has many layers of misunderstanding. <laughs> and so the picture that was released of a scientist viewing... An image of the black hole was of um, Katie Bowman, who was one of 200 people who were on a team that developed. And this is where you know my knowledge of science, the algorithm algorithmy, <laughs> uh, computery, whatever, roboty space thing um, that allowed this to happen. And so, this was a very long process, and I think what happened was this photograph of this woman who had contributed to this project um, became a stand-in for the person who cracked the code. And so I think that this story is really illustrative of the fact that in the public sphere, sometimes you can be misunderstood. Katie Bowman had no desire to be the faced and the genius of this project. Um, And at the same time, I think it did raise the issue about women's representation in the sciences, which we've talked about on this show before. And The other issue is that when people misunderstand a woman as claiming credit for something, um, the trolls can't wait. And so this devolved from a scientific discovery, women in STEM to the Jordan Peterson wing of humanity, then trying to not only discredit her, but Um, creating an online campaign to suggest that she stole the credit from a man. They were fake Instagram accounts. And so I think what this reaction shows are are three things from my perspective. One, um, the problem of newsrooms not investing in science journalism. Mm -hmm. So I think some of it was reported by folks who probably don't write about science in very sophisticated ways. And so I think it's about a crisis of information gathering. I think um, the second part of it is the fact that... That there is excitement when women are part of this because I think the numbers were um, there were actually 40 women on the team of 200 mm-hmm. who did this so that there's some questions about representation. But I think the last part is this type of reaction and misunderstanding is precisely the reason why a lot of people who can claim victories don't want to do it in the right. public eye. And so I think that there's this... Um, reaction that very much disciplines women for doing things that they didn't even do that I find the story so um, illustrative right she
1: didn't even take credit she immediately posted on Facebook that she hadn't you know she wasn't trying to take credit she was proud of the work that she had done which I believe was like um working on an algorithm that ultimately didn't end up being the one that was used but was important to the, like, creation. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think adding a fourth thing to your litany there, Marsha, is the way that we are taught about women in STEM, like, in school and beyond is, like, you can be Marie Curie and mm-hmm. n- not like you can be part of the team that, you know, develops this thing. But it's like you will be the great woman. And because you are fighting against the odds, you will triumph even more than anyone else. Like, I think that is sort of a problem. And so people are looking for that kind of thing. They're looking for the Marie Curie of the black hole photograph rather than like an understanding that it's a super collaborative process and that like it might actually be harder to integrate women to that process into that process than it is for women to be lone geniuses actually in a weird way.
0: Yeah, it was very striking the language that she used in that Facebook post. She said no one algorithm or person made this image it required the amazing talent of a team of scientists from around the globe. And in a way, that kind of ticked me off. Like, absolutely, it's a statement of fact there were 200 people working on this. They were trying multiple approaches. Apparently, there was even kind of a, an effort to anonymize kind of who's the ideas came from, to, to kind of avoid bias. It was a very, yes, clearly, let's just stipulate, it was a group project. At the same time, I kind of felt, even though I agree with everything you've both said, that like can we not take credit? Like, can we just not say, yeah, I did this and it was great. And I was one of 200, but I really worked hard. I worked for years on this. And, you know, I staked in, in some part, I staked my future on this. And and just, is it something about our socialization that just doesn't let women say, I did this and it was awesome? I think so.
2: <laughs> I, I do. And I think that because she is young in her career. I mean, there's so there's so many layers to yeah, this. And yeah. as, as someone who's also in academia, um, not in algorithmic stuff, <laughs> but understanding the culture of an environment where it is very difficult, I think, for women to um, claim that status because in doing so you have to anticipate what the implications will be for you down the line. Um, it's one of the things that um, sometimes I talk about with my colleagues. You get letters of recommendations about, like, men being wonderkins mm-hmm. and the future of the field mm-hmm. and this and that. And, like, everyone just chill out. This person just finished grad school. They're yeah. freaking out and crying all the time like the rest of us. Everyone needs to relax. And so when that when those layers are added onto your persona, I think it's, it's very... Um, I think it's very difficult to to claim in a healthy way one's accomplishments. Yeah.
0: Well, but
1: this, this was sort of a special circumstance. Like, I think if she had not become the Internet symbol of the Black Hole Project, she could have posted a, like, yeah. joyous Facebook post that said, like, here is the culmination of years of work, you know, so proud of both myself and my colleagues. But because everyone was just so eager for a symbol, mm-hmm. right? Like, and... I, I'm not trying to blame people who wanted a symbol. More of the sort of blame, I think, goes towards the people who wanted a symbol to, like... To tear down. Right, exactly. Um, But I think it would have been, I think in this particular circumstance, she couldn't exactly claim credit. She handled it, I thought, very well. Very gracefully. As did, um, there was a, there was a, male scientist, right. who then was sort of taken up as the cause celeb of the sort of Reddit troll brigade. Right. And um, child. Yeah. Yes, who um, had, I? so this it's unclear if it's actually true. Reddit decided by looking at GitHub, GitHub that um, that he had done 800,000 lines of the code, right? Uh, of the, you know, million lines of code, he was responsible for 80% of it or something approximating that. And he, he has said that that is, not true um and uh has has sort of like rejected their um canonization of him as the unsung hero of this he's also pointed out that he's a gay guy and also kind of not um like he he also is a little bit of an outsider in this world um and he's also handled this beautifully like all of the scientists involved have handled this in a I think, admirable way, this is probably not what they want to be doing. Like they've spent years working on this amazing breakthrough and now they're having to like deal with the um, blunt
0: force sexism of the Internet. Yeah. And, you know, I absolutely take the first point that you made, Marcia, that, you know, we are and I definitely include myself in this journalism is not very good at science. There are honorable exceptions, of course, including many fine science writers who are in our orbit Uh, and who I'm kind of looking at right now because Alex is also a science writer. But um, at the same time, I also understand how that image got taken up. And it was first tweeted, as I understand it, by MIT, kind of taking credit for Katie Bowman being having studied at MIT, having done her doctorate at MIT. And they were the ones who shared that photograph, which was taken back in June when the, when the photograph, or whatever we call it, the image first materialized from all the data that they'd input. And it is a joyous photo. It's, you know, of a woman, you know, putting her hands over her face with amazement and joy. And it's all of those emotions that astronomy and science and whatever this is, is supposed to invoke. And you could see that that was a much more engaging photo than the one that was also distributed of like a couple of hundred scientists like pinned against the wall at the back of a room because it's really hard to take an engaging photo of a group of people. And you could see how it happened and even though she as we've all said she did not take part in this you know people were starting twitter accounts under her name they were doing all there were all kinds of like weird sneaky behaviors that were happening possibly out of good you know maybe out of good intentions it's very hard to tell i don't know it's guess it's really hard to impute good intentions when somebody is essentially faking another person's identity but it's hard to see what the negative kind of impulse was but it you know it's understandable i guess is all that i'm is, is all that i'm struggling to say even though it was ultimately all, it all didn't work out
1: kind of thing. Well, I think these people have, you know, the idea in their head that, that the more you give places to, you know, women and people of color, the more you're taking them away from, like, yeah. a, you know, a, in their minds, a better qualified person, that she was maybe only on the team for affirmative action. By the way, she's working at Caltech. They don't, yeah. like, she's... You, <laughs> or she's going to be taking that position there, right? She's yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's, you know... You, that's that's a job that you have to be supremely qualified for. Yeah, I mean, this whole thing... And, and now she's going to have a target on her back, right, right? right? In an industry that already probably is going to overlook her. The thing that I kept thinking about, there was an article in the New York Times a few months ago about a mathematician named Ed Ray Goines who... Um, is an African-American mathematician who decided to walk away from a tenure-trap research job in sort of like the prime of his career because of essentially microaggressions, for mm. lack of a better word. Just like people, you know, he'd walk into a conference and people would not believe that he was there for the same thing as him. Like it, it was it was just like over and over just kind of cutting. And he decided that what he'd rather do is work with and mentor young people. um, So he took a teaching job at Pomona instead. And that's just a crazy thing to happen. And, you know, this is obviously not the same circumstance, but it's, I have to imagine that um, those kinds of situations are what uh, people in these fields are working against. Right. And then this is just like setting the whole thing back. Right. Yeah. It's just putting a target on the back.
2: I mean, I think that, I think you're absolutely right. And, and in that vein, even if she wasn't the sole genius who cracked the code for this, she's a woman who is in science. And so I think that's laudable. The fact that she gets up every morning and does this um, and the kind of behavior that we're watching in response to her, Mm -hmm. I think is very much the externalization of some of the internal dynamics of women in a number of fields. And so I think... The takeaway from this is the hostility that we are all getting, um, you know, the, the hostility that we're able to view right now is the hostility that is happening at labs, in classrooms, in seminar, seminar rooms, in universities all over the country. And can we learn something from this? Because I think one of the dangers is to suggest that the trolls are these extremists. Mm. And at the same time, someone who holds that view is the same person who condescends to women and people of color at work. It's the same people who can't imagine um, a young woman being a scientist. And so I think that... If there's anything to learn from this, is like this incredibly, you know, um, clear mirror of what it is to be an underrepresented person in any field. And that story you say about this guy who just kind of walked off the plant, I know tons of people who have just similarly decided that it was not worth it mm-hmm. to um, be a pathbreaker um, at the expense of your kind of mental and emotional health and they just do something else. And I think that that is why this story then becomes so intriguing because the number of people who can actually stay and tolerate um, the behavior in the workplace, it's, it's small.
0: Well, and I have to admit, um, and I promise I'm not just trying to drive outrage here, but that when this story first came out, I was a little bit like aggravated, not but not by anything that Dr. Bowman did or, you know, clearly I was aggravated by the, the sexist response, but like, It kind of bugs me that we spend so much, we give so much focus to STEM in the sense that, yes, what Dr. Bowman did was amazing, whether part of a team or whatever, but women do amazing things every day and you don't get parades for nurses, for teachers, for childminders. Like there are so many people in this world who work their asses off and don't get, you know, don't get their picture tweeted a million times. And that's not to say that she doesn't deserve it is to say that more of us deserve it at the same time yeah there's got to there is so much of a problem in many fields that women and people of color are just not given the respect that makes them want to be there and to to do the work uh you know that they are that they would be best suited to do like if there's it's there's a very, it brings up very kind of conflicted feelings in me, even though, of course, I want people to be, I want everybody to be recognized for hard work. Um, And yet I understand why we have to give this extra attention to STEM, because all the people that I know have felt, who were, you know, engineering students for example, the women I know who were engineering students felt extremely alienated, felt like there was no comfortable place for them, and that obviously can't stand, but it feels like kind of like there's kind of a, what's that? This soft bigotry of low expectations. Like, oh, it's a woman in STEM. Let's throw a parade. Like, actually, there's, you know, there there are maybe there maybe we should challenge the systemic problems instead of you know, being happy for a joyful photograph. <laughs> this is really contrary. I'm taking I mean, it down I,
1: into a weird weird place. I, I understand. S- I see what you mean, but but and uh, the work that teachers and nurses and so many women do is wonderful. But those are in fields where. uh women are expected to go right and and there is I think there is an extra layer like I certainly felt discouraged in in subtle ways from going into STEM right and like the work that teachers and nurses and the rest do is like vital but also um You know, our planet is like maybe dying, and I I think that
0: we need as many people wanting to become scientists as possible. Yes, and of course, I think it's been revealed that I stopped doing science when I think I was about thirteen. So (laughs) yeah, clearly my there might be a little bit of like, well, I couldn't do that, so obviously no one needs to. Yeah, my
2: only hot take is that I celebrate women every day for living in a society that hates them so much. And so I think that is something to celebrate each and every day. Right on. I think that's a just
0: right take. Yes. That's a good place to end this. Listeners tell us what you thought about the Bowman Brew Haha by sending an email to the Waves at slate dot com.
2: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club
0: Before we get to our next topic, I just want to mention that The Waves is getting together with Outward Slate's LGBTQ podcast to host a live show during Slate Day. If you'll be in New York City on Saturday, June 8th, there will be no better place to have a boozy picnic brunch and enjoy some sparkling, sassy conversation with Hannah, Noreen, Nicole Perkins, me, along with Brian Lauda and Brandon Tensley from the Outward podcast. Start Slate Day right. Go to slate.com slash live for details. All right. Our second topic today is parenting while running for president. Rebecca Traster had a fantastic piece in The Cut titled Mom vs. Dad on the Road to 2020. Noreen, what was Traster talking about?
1: All right. So we have not obviously had that many women run for president. Uh, In our history, but more than that, we have not had that many women run for president who are the mothers of young children or who talk all that much about being a mother. And so the first for the first time in history, this is true. Kirsten Gillibrand is making her role as a mom a big part of her campaign. Amy Klobuchar's is a mom. Elizabeth Warren is a mom to adult children, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, on the men's side of the 2020 race, there is Beto O'Rourke, who, um, as as previously <laughs> ranted about by me on this <laughs> podcast, um, it has sort of ignored the fact that his children do not seem to want him to run for president um and has talked instead about being on a hero's journey there i mean there is joe biden who um will probably jump into the race who has gotten a lot of credit for being a father so Re- what rebecca's piece looked at was the way that um fatherhood Uh, is only a bonus for men who are running for political office right like it it can it only shows that you can be tough but strong right whereas for women who are politicians who are mothers it is just a it's such a complicated trap if you talk about it too much it's a little embarrassing you're and then you're judged really harshly for being a bad mother for being away from your children too much if you don't talk about it too much or if you are um, in fact, not a mother, then are you a really a full human being? There's like sort of no right way to be a mother um, running for office. And of course, then we can sort of, you know, politics is the grand scale on which all of our morality plays are enacted. <laughs> exactly. But um, in other industries, this is, of course,
0: true as well. I have to admit that so the the, the piece in the cut started uh, or the the header of the piece was this Photograph of Elizabeth Warren that I'd never seen before. I love the photograph. Yeah, and she was 22 and she had just had what I believe was her first child, Amelia, and she's holding the baby. And, you know, it, it's again, it's a classic photograph in a way. It's another joyous photograph. It's like joy and excitement and, you know, panic in a certain sense. The, the kind of photo, the kind of a look that you see on all new parents' faces. And I have to admit that, like, that seeing that photo in a little way changed the way I view her. I mean, I, I've, I'm actually... Really? I'm favorably disposed to her anyway. I don't have any, you know, very few hang-ups about Elizabeth Warren, but it made me like her more. And seeing that, like, that was a purely instinctive, a purely, um, I don't know, brain chemistry kind of thing, because, you know, I'm not particularly into children. I'm not a parent. I'm not like one of these, like, oh, coo. But it made me realize, you know, I, I already have an admiration for her biography, and just kind of realizing that, oh, look, she's a mom. Like, somehow <laughs> right. it does bring up feelings, even in hard-hearted people like me. What,
1: what feelings, though? Does it soften her? Does it make you think that, that she'll have this kind of, like, Sarah Palin, Mama Grizzly, just practical Ooh. getting it done for our children thing? Like, what? Do you, does it make her more relatable? Like, what is it about motherhood
0: that... It was a sympathy thing. It was a awe kind of thing. It was uh-huh.
1: a... You know, I I, like cute, cute animal video on the internet,
0: uncontrollable. Yeah. And, you know, just some of the examples that you mentioned there, like motherhood, just the notion of motherhood, it brings up many different feelings. When I think, for example, of Nancy Pelosi being the mother of five, you know, waiting till her youngest child was senior in high school before entering Congress. Like, that's a different kind of feeling. That's like, wow, she gets shit done. You know, a kind of an admiration for a person with five children whose home base is in California you know going into politics and being so successful like there and and you know mama grizzly that obviously brings up another kind of feeling but i do appreciate like i get what that's about so their motherhood isn't one feeling but there there was that there was the specifics of that picture i mean i knew that she was a mom and a grandmother but the photo it it just like it's a brain chemistry thing
1: well it's super intimate right she's yeah. not you know she's clearly just given birth a yeah. brand new newborn she's so young um, yeah, there there's something super intimate there. I mean, Nancy Pelosi is an interesting case study to bring up, right? Because she is someone who has actually just not just used um, her role as a mother to talk about policies. Right. But she's also just used it to talk about politics that that she's referred to sort of getting her caucus in line as like, I know how to do this because I have handled children before, essentially. And she's said the thing, same thing about Donald Trump. But like, I know when someone's throwing a temper tantrum, which (laughs) has both sort of humor value, but also probably is a little bit true. Um, But the other way that she has talked about it that I find super interesting is that, you know, she's been criticized for holding on to leadership for quote unquote longer than she should although I think the Democrats are probably pretty happy to have her right about now Um, but most memorably when Luke Russert was something like 27 or 28 Mm -hmm. he asked her um, you know why are you holding on to this when younger people you know could be or should be taking the reins and she said well you know I you have to give me 14 years because I got into this 14 like subtract 14 years from what I've done. I got into this um later because I was raising my children and you know my male colleagues of course weren't and like they were they had children mm-hmm. um uh they just weren't sort of you know doing it in the same way and I mm-hmm. and I think that's a really interesting moment.
2: So I think I I love everything that Rebecca Trace writes. So I really enjoyed this article. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this um, as we've been talking about the election in class. And I often ask my students, like, identify political issues that are considered mom issues. And they'll say, you know, um, uh, gun safety and gun control, violence prevention. They'll say, you know, cost of education, all these things. And I'll say, what what are dad issues? and they really cannot articulate them, right? Someone said taxes in class, which I thought was pretty good. (laughs) But I was like, isn't that interesting that there's Uh this weird way in which we presuppose that dads have a relationship to the political process that is unspoken, but that that this whole, like, running as a mom thing, which makes me very uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. the running as a mom thing is about the care of the family that goes outward. And there's a Mm -hmm. long history of that. But I am happy to see, as more and more women kind of enter and declare for 2020 um, some of the mom stuff I think is a little bit more tempered because I, I thought the Sarah Palin, Mama Grizzly thing was fascinating mm-hmm. because she was a woman with a lot of children and the governor of an oil producing state. Mm-hmm.
1: And the, mother, and, of an infant, and the, the mother of
2: an infant. And the mother of an infant who had, you know, had a child over 40. There were like all of these kind of interesting dynamics. And it was just all this bullshit about hockey. And it was all <laughs> this bullshit. And it was like, this enough, right? Like, can you please be a person who has... Um, a life in which you're balancing a lot of things, but Mm -hmm. one of them is being governor of a state, like not a small thing. And Mm so all of that is to say that I think with the age range of some of the women who are entering um, their own proximity to their children's age, if they have children like this, I guess they all do, um, that it, it I think the the mom stuff seems a little different, and I appreciate that because I think that um, if we really want to see women across the life cycle running for elective office, the thing that I think is interesting is that women without children are running and no one is asking them about that.
1: Yeah, Although well, Kamala Harris refers to herself— Momala. Uh, yeah, on her Twitter bio and elsewhere as Momala because she's the stepmother— mm-hmm. Um, to, and and that's an interesting choice, mm-hmm. right? Like, she doesn't have to make that. She's made a decision that it maybe softens her, that maybe, mm-hmm. like, she needs – she's been – I mean, and you could understand, like, why in her very particular case that might be true, because she um, was a prosecutor, which is not exactly a soft job. She um, – the thing most people know about her personal life is that she had uh, a relationship with – a much older politician when she was in her 20s and so it kind of is you could see her team being like well okay let's play up the mama thing but it is a little bit um and and i'm sure that's a super important relationship in her life right, right. but to put it in your twitter bio is definitely a choice yes and there is, and,
0: a, and there is a candidate who doesn't have uh kids uh tulsi gabbard okay she doesn't. Um, have children. but you know i also don't know that we're taking her candidacy terribly seriously uh Uh, you know, as a chance of somebody who's going to get very far in the race. I like the
2: fact that Stacey Abrams does not have children. She's an unmarried black woman and everyone is like kind of letting that alone, especially coming from the conservative South. So I think that um, the fact that she can be vetted and people are asking different questions about her potential makes me feel a little bit better that some of this like mom stuff um, will at least slow down. I don't think it'll ever go away. Um, But it's funny, the Elizabeth Warren thing, the picture was very cute. Mm-hmm. But when I think of her as a mom, I think of that book she wrote with her daughter, The Two-Income Trap, which I'm obsessed with. Oh it's Amazing. all about how the system is rigged and like people like myself need to upend the system because we're middle class, but it's not real. Um, She wrote this book with her daughter, Amelia, called The Two-Income Trap, Why Middle-Class Parents Are Still Going Broke. And when I think of her as a parent, I think of the fact that she's already, like, even engaging her children in questions about income inequality, Mm -hmm. which I appreciate. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that there is something um, really interesting about her working on that kind of project with her daughter.
0: Yeah. I just want to mention, too, that Stacey Abrams, is, it's even more interesting because she's effectively, I believe, raising two, uh, two children, I believe, who are, were the children of a sibling who's oh, unable right. to take care of them. And so she has this kind of quasi-parental role, which is very interesting in that she she kind of gets some – like she gets – A certain kind of status for that and also maybe protects her from criticism. It's very interesting. And also, clearly, it's extremely admirable that she does that. Which
2: is what America looks like. Exactly. Which is, is, you know, one of the consequences of mass incarceration. One of the consequences of, um, you know, working poor households is that there is an extension. She does talk about taking helping to take care of family. And I Mm -hmm. think that that's the framework that I think we need more of. That families... um, are made and remade in different ways, both biological and chosen. Yep.
1: And she actually went on the Cuts podcast to talk about her relationship with money. Mm. Um, and it's super fascinating because she's very, very frank about the way yep. that taking care of her family, not just... Um, her brother's kids but also her parents um like has contributed to her debt and and i just heard it and i think that probably at different points in her political career she didn't want to talk about that that the debt was considered a liability and and it makes you think oh people are actually gonna like totally understand this
0: Mm
1: -hmm. absolutely um which Okay, now let's go back to Beto. Mm -hmm. I want to know if you guys think that it's actually going to matter for him that um, he has been a somewhat absent father on the campaign trail. Like, I'm annoyed by it. Mm -hmm. I see all the quotes. I, like, raise my fist in the sky as do, like, a million other feminists on Twitter and I think maybe just women paying attention to it. But will it in
0: any way matter to him? I think that it, like, everything, you know... I'm going to misuse some uh, some theory, but every decoding is an encoding. Like for, although for people like you and me, it is just crazy making and like, dude, how can like think it but don't say it out loud? Like it just seems <laughs> moronic. But I think it will be a positive signal for others. Seriously, like, I, I do, like. I wish it weren't so, but I don't have a positive enough view of the world to think that there won't be some guys going. He's just saying the truth. Like he's got more. I don't even know what they'll be but saying. But he's apologized. Right. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think this is just as a, a, an indication of my poor view of the world that I do think it might work because I think it's appalling. But I think that anything that anything that feminists condemn, I'm sure there are people out there that, that then go, oh, well, that must be good then.
2: I think there's two ways of viewing this. Um, I think that kind of embedded in being a member of Congress is time away from family, whether it's for campaigning or for being in Washington, D.C. So I don't know if you'll get dinged for that. But the other part of it that makes me think about the point that you raised about debt and relatability, there are many Americans who have to be away from their families for work. And so I really struggle with how much I want to be judgy about this, because um, when people can't find work in one area, they keep their kids in schools with grandparents and they go find jobs elsewhere. I'm like, this shows that the system is rigged. I hate capitalism. But when privileged people do these things and then they like joke about it or they're not serious about it, then I get annoyed. So I think that... um, I think you know male politicians, and in the Tracer piece, she brings up you know when um, Barack Obama had to go away um, in the state house, and then when he was in the Senate. I think that um, you know there was this kind of reflectiveness about it, but I don't think there was ever an implication. So then maybe I should quit. It's mm-hmm. like no, I should mm-hmm. be president, so I'll see my kids more. It's this weird kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And President Obama used to say this all the time, like, "Oh, I love being in the White House. I see my kids more than I did before." Um, And at the same time, I think there's a romantic narrative of women who say, I haven't been seeing my kids enough, so I decided to stop working as much. And so I don't think I think that there's a kind of an awareness that it's uncomfortable, but I don't think it is really a liability when men do it. And he
1: gets to have it kind of both ways, right? Like that he both gets to apologize and be the woke guy who sees the error of his ways, but also his fairly traditional maybe this is what you were sort of getting at june but his fairly traditional marriage is now on display and i think what's appealing to a lot of people about beto is that he actually is
0: super traditional but like dressed up in the cool rock and roll clothes Mm -hmm. you know yeah i just want to i think that's absolutely right i just want to take a moment to to get back to what you were saying marcia because i do think there is a huge systemic problem in, in this regard with politics in a gigantic country like america i mean Again, in the Trace to Peace, there were two examples that she gave of um, people, politicians, who had made a point of seeing their kids. So there was a quote from Geraldine Ferraro's husband uh, when she was running for vice president that he said, like during her six years in Congress, she only had two weekends away from her kids, which is impressive and all of that. But you know, she lived in Brooklyn. She was on the Amtrak corridor. It is not nothing to go back and forth from D.C. to New York, but it ain't all of that. Similarly, Joe Biden, who, you know, gets and surely deserves credit for having been a very engaged for many years single father because, you know, in a terrible tragedy, his wife and infant daughter were, were killed um, just, you know, weeks before his election. So, you know, he was forced in a very real way to, to, to spend a bunch of time um, as a new senator, being a very engaged father, but he famously went home every night because he lived in Delaware, which again is on the Amtrak corridor. Like, it's good that they did that, give them credit, but it was possible for them to do it. If you're a senator or any member of Congress anywhere else, or even in a, a largest state where you need to be at the state house, you can't go home, and that affects obviously women and men. It affects all politicians, and I think of you know California's uh, representative. Like it's a very long way from Washington D.C. How are you going to have a family? We're, we don't, you know, we we set this up to be very difficult, and and uh, you know Amy Klobuchar, uh, you know she's Minnesota. That is not on the commuter, but you know Kristen Gillibrand, not that. Hard to get home. I mean, you know, it, this is a factor, and it's weird because it's just a fact of geography. Well, uh, it's almost like it was set up by people who
1: <laughs> didn't <laughs> crazy, didn't even think that they needed yeah. to play a role as parents. Yeah, yeah. Mar- Marshall, I actually want to go back to you saying that you're uncomfortable with talking about motherhood in politics in general.
2: I'm curious. Yeah, because um, i I'm, I'm worried about the ways that. Um, without many exceptions um, that women's desire for power or leadership has to be tethered to an ethic just of care and not of a kind of broad-based critique so I think it's I, like it's one of the reasons why we can't imagine a lady Bernie Sanders um, even though they're incredible women who have, Um, You know, a socialist orientation who have really strong ideas. Maybe AOC is probably the closest we get that it doesn't come out of this um, very um, narrow idea of how women become woke. Mm -hmm. I lost a family member. I went through elder care. I went through the struggle of child care. Those are really important um, Consciousness raising moments, but I just want there to be other possibilities for the narrative because I think that um, the more women are choosing to be childless, um, the fact that you know I'm of a of a peer group in which people become parents later in life or become adoptive parents, I think that when we kind of um, deconstruct our ideas of what family making is, then we have better ideas about how we're going to lead. And if they only come from, I sat around my kitchen table with my family and how was I going to pay for college um, versus narratives that said, you know, my best friend was sick and I wanted to find a way to take care of them. Maybe we really need to think about health care or I I actually don't have any personal relationship to care, but there are some structural inequalities that I really want to get at that all three of those narratives are politically viable. And I don't think we're quite there yet.
1: Well, and speaking of AOC in particular, Tucker Carlson uh, said recently that, you know, well, she what does she know? Basically, she's not a mother, like as if there is some oh, moral Jesus. compass that's just bestowed
0: on you. So that's that's just a new way to attack <laughs> AOC. Uh, so many are available to uh to the people on Fox News. Okay, listeners, if you have thoughts on the parenting styles of our presidential candidates, please write to us at at slate.com. Okay, our final topic today is white male victimhood. Aaron Friedman had a piece in BuzzFeed recently titled False Victimhood is Driving Young White Men to Murder. And while murder is the extreme edge of the phenomenon, there does appear to be a growing sense that Despite evidence to the contrary, like factual evidence to the contrary, many white men are expressing that they feel like victims in contemporary society and is driving a small number of those men to kill. Um, so, as I said, Friedman's piece was clearly looking at an extreme manifestation of this. He was looking at explicit statements of men who had committed murders and um, about their feelings, who had expressed feelings of victimhood. And he was looking at like studies of the Rwandan genocide that showed that messages that Tutsis were settlers on land that really belonged to Hutus, a false narrative need to say, you know, how that made some of them feel like victims and some of them, you know, and to act out on this. So this is clearly, you know, there is psychology that it has been used um, in many parts of the world. Are these outlier narratives useful, do you think?
1: Oh, I don't even think they're out. I mean, they're extreme. Mm Extreme, But I actually think the primary narrative, maybe in America in general, but certainly on the right, um, is one of victimhood right now, which is so strange. If you look at at the trick Fox News has pulled, is that they have made every sort of conservative white person in America think that the system is rigged against them. Um, That truly, like that is their whole programming model is telling you all the things that are being taken from you, that you're your way of life is under attack, right? It's a victim mentality. I mean, even, it's crazy. Like, Make America Great Again sounds like this positive framing, but it's it's actually a total victimhood mentality right. where instead of, like, this strong man Reagan vision of, of yeah, just projected strength, it is, like, we are under attack. Our way of life is under attack. Nothing, it, it, nothing will be better again unless we do all these things to fight back. Like, I, I just think victimhood is... is the dominant um, framework of
0: our time. Well, and it starts at the top right. uh, A certain uh, man who lives in the White House who claims to be a billionaire, Um, he is constantly railing against an unfair, an unfair system of which he is a victim.
1: Right. He's the, he's the most powerful man in the world. And he's, you know, he's, he's being brought down by Twitter and media elites. It's, it's like kind of insane. And I don't want to let the left off. I think that there are ways in which there's a sort of victimhood complex on the left too. It's just what, like, what is it about the pose of victim that feels so powerful in this moment? It's like, it's like striking back from being on bottom or something. I don't know.
2: Um, so I think that these pieces about victimhood are interesting, but they are historically consistent because I think um so much about the construction of whiteness in the United States is about victimhood um, in order for um, in order for white supremacy to have a justification and a measure, victimhood becomes the perfect foil, right? So, um, you have to do outrageous acts of violence. You have to hurt others because you are. Um, you're very close to becoming a victim or further victimization. And then you kind of look at your damage and say, okay, I'm not going to be a victim. See, I did this. And so, um, you know, what we're having right now is just another iteration of um, a political, economic, and social culture that gives people an opportunity to define victimhood relative to, um, you know, Non white people relative to global power, relative to technology. I mean, there's always just a different mechanism. And um, Tara Hunter, the preeminent historian of prin- at Princeton University, she wrote a piece this week in the New York Times um, about reparations and white slaveholders and the fact that. The only time the United States has paid reparations as a result of slavery are people who lost their property after the Civil War. And if that isn't kind of like the best um, example of how this works um, and how profitable victimhood is um, in this really sick way, um, you know, so we can go from that example to the 2016 election. And so I think that. The fact that we actually have people who have the critical thinking skills and the foresight to actually name it, that is what I'm most impressed by. Uh, not the idea so much as the ability to actually call it what it is.
1: When do you think this mindset started in the United States? Like, is that the like sort day of one. day one?
2: <laughs> day one, right? And I think that there are... We um,
1: could say more about that, like how, like, because the the natives are not...
2: Yeah, like the root of this country is about um, about imagination rather than reality, right? So it's the imagined threat of um, conflict on land that doesn't belong to you, right? None of that makes sense. But it's emerging as a victim of, um, you know, whether it's God's displeasure with um, segments of the population, whether It is being a victim of native populations who have claimed to land, whether it's being victims of um, emancipated African-Americans who um, under one system were property and now are people and you have to grapple with it. I think that that's like the through line. I think the thing that we find most appalling about it in this moment is that it's not even just resting on. Um, what's in front of us here, it's going back. It's the make America great again um, narrative that suggests that there was a time where victimhood wasn't at the center of the discourse, but it always has been. Um, And so I think what is interesting is that when you have that sense of victimhood met with a culture in which you have a lot of access to firearms Mm -hmm. and you have access to technologies to spread these ideas in more efficient ways, we have this kind of present moment where you know, there's these horrible mass shootings and people say, you know, I never thought this guy would do it, but he has a domestic violence charge against his family. Or, you know, he um, was accused of abusing his children or elders in his family. And the inability to connect those dots is, I think, the thing that is most concerning to me.
1: Yeah. And it's that's the other thing about this moment is that it really genuinely is a moment in which culture created by women and people of color is ascendant in which like discussions of um, historical oppression are uh, common, and the internet sort of might make that feel to some people as if that's the dominant note of our culture, right? As if, like, you know, it, it, it's. I keep going back to to my friend Beto O'Rourke and just thinking about him saying, "Oh, like, it's such a disadvantage to be a white man in this race." Right, you know, right. it's just this sort of twisted notion that just because. A certain portion of people are trying to draw attention to other narratives, other kinds of people that like all of a sudden to be the dominant like uh, social group in our entire nation is somehow a disadvantage. And I do think that there is like a fun house mirror effect that the Internet can have that distorts um, reality for people.
0: Yeah, I just want to um, kind of. Bring it uh, to bring this discussion to an international place very briefly. Um, a couple of episodes ago, I, I recommended Fintan O'Toole's book, "Heroic Failure: Brexit and the Politics of Pain," and in a very significant way, that book is about the feeling of victimhood that Britain, a very successful country in many ways, started to feel and, and just really started to revel in what is effectively self pity. Um, and it, I feel that these feelings these emotional motivations that we're talking about could very very easily be kind of carried over and placed on top of of that particular set of of strange self-destructive feelings that are going on there so this clearly is is not limited uh, to the United States not that everybody was suggesting that it and I was.
2: and I think the thing that is alarming about this victimization is that the narrative is also held by people with incredible amounts of power to do something about their feelings of victimization. So it's one thing if you feel like yourself are outside of the pool of, you know, society, if you feel like you're at the margins, and you have no access to a television network, a president, Firearms, modes of communication, power over your family and local community. Like if you didn't have all of those things, um, your feelings of victimhood may not really animate themselves outside of like a feeling of low self-worth, grumpiness Mm -hmm. and being unpleasant to be around. The problem is, is that when this kind of feeling of victimization <laughs> metastasizes among populations that have access to the ballot and guns and authority, this is where like, we really start to kind of see... It's most, um, you know, toxic iterations. And this is why I think it's so important for there to be vigilance and naming of this type of, um, you know, a version of white terrorism that emerges in these Reddit groups that inspires someone to make fake Twitter accounts for Mm -hmm. this woman Mm -hmm. who's just at her job. right? Right, Right. Like if something like that could stir groups of people into that kind of like rageful feeling, you know, God forbid that we have any other kind of outward sign of something that seems like
0: progress? Yeah, I have to say, I there's one area of this where I don't. I'm very kind of conflicted about my feelings because, you know, I'm from a working class background, and and it's not that I it's not. I'm not trying to express sympathy, but I get that when people are talking about privilege, 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 white privilege, <clears throat> and there are certain men, white men, who are working class, who don't have a college education, who, you know. Their privilege is real, but it is not. Uh, it's outweighed uh, by other factors. Yeah, and it's not terribly salient. It's very hard for them to take advantage of it in a in a sort of larger way. Um, when and so I don't know. It's like really clearly, this is a question of you know basic intersectionality. Um, you know, you need to understand, but like that's not a message that I don't know how to not trigger those people. And I also don't want to spend my time worrying about those people. I would like to spend my time, um, you know, on other sections of the population, but I just worry that we are contributing to this problem in a way that I don't really want to, if there was another sort of messaging that we could use. And I'm, I'm struggling here to kind of articulate this conflict that I feel inside, but...
2: Well, well, I think what you're talking about is there's nothing inevitable about being terrible. And so there really isn't. So historically, there have been people who have been in the white working class who say that, yes, the system is rigged. Um, It's maybe more rigged towards other people. And so what I'm going to do is try to upend the system by being collaborative and anti-racist and organizing, right? Like there are tons of people who've done that. I think those people are outliers and often are shamed or disappeared. But I do think that there's something really powerful about presenting models of other ways of dealing with your resentment and your frustration. I'm irritated all the time, (laughs) um, but I think I've made some choices to ensure that that irritation doesn't become um, either structural or interpersonal violence towards people around me. And it's really hard. And at the same time, I've met people who have done that and have been really inspirational to me. And I think that, you know, after this election this romance with the white working class as a monolith that is unable to synthesize the complex emotions of frustration um, and inequality is both demeaning and irritating all at the same time. And I think that um, what I think is interesting is, yes, there are a lot of white working class people who don't see their privilege. The thing that I think is amazing is that they're more likely to outearn me <laughs> as a really educated black woman. And I think that data... Can be a point where we can say, huh, the system really is rigged. How are we going to think together about upending it? But unfortunately, I think that the dominant model of how to mediate those feelings is to be really racist yeah. and resent me. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so I think that these are the things that we have radical possibilities. And this is why A um, sound history education is the most important liberatory tool because then people see that there are other ways in which they can act on these feelings.
1: Right. It doesn't have to
0: be a zero sum game. That's a lovely lovely place to end. All right. Let's move on to our recommendations but before we get to our specific uh, thoughts this week I just want to mention that over the years Slate podcast hosts on this show and others have recommended countless cool useful weird and interesting articles books films TV shows podcasts and products you name it someone's recommended it for your convenience we've collected all those recommendations and put them into a searchable database the Slate podcast Endorsomatic. you can find everything we and all our colleagues Colleagues and other Slate podcasts have ever chatted about, recommended, endorsed in one handy place. You can give it a whirl at slate.com slash endorsements. All right, let's add to those endorsements. Uh, what do you have this week, Marsha? Um,
2: this is a podcast that um, premiered in 2018, and I hope, hopefully it will come back. It's called No Man's Land. Have you guys done this one? No, I don't no. think so. No, excellent. So No Man's Land uh, comes to us by The Wing. And it's a podcast that is about women who are too bad for your textbooks. Um, it's hosted by the historian Alexis Coe. And the episodes just tell complex stories of women who may be familiar to some listeners, maybe new to others, but it is the perfect mix of um, history, as well as some cultural analysis and It is a great opportunity to actually hear a woman talking about history. (laughs) Sounds awesome. Noreen?
1: Um, I'm going to recommend something that we thought about talking about today, but maybe kick down the road um, maybe for next week. Um, And this is going to be a little bit of, you know, um, rooting for the home team, but it is a New York (laughs) Magazine package. and I didn't I wasn't one of the editors on it, so i can I can just be a reader on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Marriage Investigation. Um, and it is just a big picture think about, the role that marriage plays, uh, why get married in this day and age at all, you know, um, what does marriage change? So it, it just is like chock full of stuff, beautiful photographs. Um, the cover of the magazine has like uh, couples sort of asleep or in bed together photographed from above. And it feels like really like you're kind of intimately right, eavesdropping on right. something. Um, and my absolute favorite part of the package was a conversation between a couple that's been married um, since I think the seventies, um, the famous Robert, the famous rock critic Robert Criscow, um, and his wife, and they, um, you know, they met when she was like, you know, coming back from an ashram, and she was, you know, sleeping with other people. It was this very like seventies counterculture marriage, and he was the big rock critic, and she was an aspiring novelist. Um, and then it just, you see the course of the marriage. It, uh, they had, you know, they had fertility problems and in the middle of the fertility problems, um, she had an affair and they came back from all of that. And, you know, there was cancer and they came back from it and they they talked about which years were the best sex years for them. And it wasn't like when they were 30. It yeah. was like when they were, you know, like 68 years old or something. It just was this really kind of oddly sweet portrait of a very particular marriage in which they still seem to be so in love deep into the marriage. Um, so yeah, marriage investigation uh, by my colleagues at New York magazine.
0: You're such a romantic <laughs> Um I am going to recommend a show that I think I've recommended every season that it's on, but it, it just gets <laughs> weirder and also more awesome. And that is the good fight, which unfortunately is a little hard to access because you can only get it on CBS all access, which is a streaming service Um, that uh, it doesn't have anything except CBS shows. But um, it's kind of worth it for The Good Fight um, because it is crazy and absurd and just bizarre often. Um, Like, for example, just to give an example, in the first episode of season three, um, one of the character's husbands goes hunting with um, uh, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump. He gets shot. And by them, and uh, he has a scar, and the scar, uh, his wife sees Donald Trump in it, has a conversation with the scar as Donald Trump. I mean, like this is the kind of thing that happens. At the same time, there also deals with really real serious issues that are not particularly dealt with on television, like the what happens if you are a black woman with your child, and a white woman calls the police because she doesn't approve of the way you're parenting. A topic that in real life we've discussed on this show or about problems of white supremacists uh, uh, threatening voters at polling places or, or you know, pay equity, uh, both uh, around gender and around race in law firms. It deals with really big issues, very satisfactorily and and in a way that um, feels just very exciting. And it has this just bizarre stuff as well. So, The Good Fight. Oh, also, it has some amazing actresses, Audra McDonald, Cush Jumbo, and Christine Baranski, to name just a few. So, The Good Fight, season three. All right, that's our show for today. If you liked it, please rate and recommend us on Apple Podcasts. That really helps people find us, which we really like. And thank you to our production assistant, Alex Barish and our producer, Danielle Hewitt. You can tweet to us at Dr. M. Chatelain, at Nori Malone, and at June Thomas. For Marsha and Noreen, I'm June Thomas, and The Waves will be back next week. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family,
2: cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at Chabacasino.com.